Uh, Matthew chapter 2. Let's open our Bibles to this as the kids head out to Sunday school. Matthew chapter 2. And as um, Jeff said earlier, uh, we are talking and praying together for the next geographical location God has for us. Um, Our contract for this building ends. This building has a really unique story because... When we, when we first came here, it wasn't necessarily something we were thinking about having as a chapel, but our offices initially. And then this happened. And so uh, let's continue to sow in prayer, sow in expectation in God's goodness, and just continue to pray as we think about an awesome, I think 2019 can only be amazing because of the God that we serve. Amen. Yeah. And... So we're looking to be on the other side of 45, not too far from here, Uh, maybe in the Grogan's Mill area, or maybe uh, we'll see what God does, but uh, it would be really great, and this is something that's been on my heart since we've moved here. Actually, in Philly, I had this idea, was to have a church partnering with a cafe, because coffee and communion, right, Meet, you know, it's just a great mixture of just fellowship and interaction. And uh, it's great to have Michael back home. I was thinking about you today or last night. He's on our fridge, so just in a 2D format. And we pray for him. I think about him. Matthew chapter 2. Let's look in our Bibles together. We've been celebrating this Advent season. And uh, something I was thinking about this week. And just in prayer, and I don't know, but sometimes, uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes I wake up in the morning, and I'm not even awake, and I just have this, this thought that's going on. And I had this thought earlier this week when I got up about worship, and about this whole topic of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And you know what verse came to my mind as I was getting up, and just kind of, you know, you get up, and you turn on the coffee machine, and just make your way to brush your teeth. Now you know my schedule in the morning. Coffee, teeth. And uh, this verse came to my mind that when Herod said, and he, we'll read these verses here in a moment, when he talked about worshiping, Herod said, tell us where Jesus is so that we too, so I too can come and worship. Let's read, let's read verses 1 through 11 together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. These were very interesting men, as we know. They were, they were Persians, actually. They were Magi, and they were actually men that were astronomers. They were uh, very engaged and engrossed in the whole topic of stars in general. And we know that when Daniel, in the book of Daniel, when Daniel was living in Persia at that time, there was a lot of talk about the coming Messiah to Israel. And there were, there were a group of people in Persia that had, had remembered this generation to generation to generation. It was still in their minds that there's a Messiah coming and there's going to be an amazing event. And when the star came, and there's a lot to talk about the Bethlehem star, there was this, there was this renewing and this reviving in Persia amongst a group of men that were awaiting the king, the Messiah. And it's very interesting who these people were. And there was not just three. It was probably a very large group. Because three wealthy wise men are not going to travel across a barren desert that's filled with bandits. They're going to travel in a very large group, probably about a hundred or so. So that night in Matthew chapter 2, when these wise men come from Persia, 
they come to Jerusalem and they're coming with pro- quite a ha- large band, large group, and then they're showing up at Herod's temple. And this brought quite a, this brought quite a stir. It's saying in verse 2, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and, how, and have come to worship him. Verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. The whole city was troubled. What a weird situation. I mean, you think mm-hmm. about God's PR plan, God's preparation, God's marketing plan for his son to come to the, if I could use those, those words in this state, it sounds blasphemous in some way, but God in some, was advertising this and talking about this for generations and generations and generations. And then he gets very specific in, Ma- in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and he says, this is where he's going to be born, and this is when he's going to be born. And so all of Jerusalem is troubled. Isn't that amazing? Jesus shows up on the scene, and sometimes he just causes trouble. It's just causing trouble. Just his presence causes trouble. And verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And in verse 5, they told, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for as it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, for I too may come and worship him. Interesting words, huh? We know that that was a deceitful lie from Herod, and his intent was to kill this baby. But there is, there is a intent in the world in some way to worship this child. And it is not a pure intent. But even in this poor, dysfunctional, motivated desire to worship Jesus, Jesus here is glorified. In verse 9, after listening to the king they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it, was, when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I think these guys were believers. I mean, just the joy that they had. Um, and in verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. I just want to look at these words for a few minutes this morning, and I just want to talk about three things. Uh, Who are the worshipers? Who are the worshipers? Uh, Number two, what is worship? And number three, there are two things that I see that always accompany worship, two things that are always accompanying this this act of worship. So number one, who are the worshipers? Who are the worshipers? You and I. We are the worshipers. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, one of my favorite verses, verse that really speaks to me volumes, says this, because that the worshipers, once purged, should have no more conscience of sin. Not consciousness, which is awareness, but conscience of sin. I think that whenever you, if you're engaged in some, something, some service in the church, I don't know if you ever feel this way, maybe the worship leaders feel this way, or the guy, the guy, you, know, you guys playing the instruments, or... Whatever you do, I feel it sometimes. You have this, you know, you're preparing and you're like, okay, I'm going to be speaking to a group of people, you know, last night or today. And you're just, and this conscience 
your conscience sometimes is activated by just the memory of your imperfections. I don't know if you ever think that way. Am I the only one that's in this room that thinks that way? <laughs> it's the conscience of sin. And we know that, that the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, that the worshipers would have no more conscience of sin. And I just want to start this Christmas message with this, is that, that having our conscience purged by the blood of Jesus Christ, our conscience is made in a, such a certain way. Our conscience doesn't, can't just blow something off. It just can't blow it off. You know, in our conscious mind, we can say, okay, that didn't matter or whatever. But the conscience is built in such a way that it is, it is, the, it is the, the accountant. Of the, it is the accountant of all the deeds of the, of the body. And what it does is it, is it has all the norms and the standards of what's right and wrong. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil dwells there if it's not been purged by the blood of Christ. And the conscience is going to always, if it's not been purged by the blood of Christ, it's going to always remind us of something that has been, that is, that has been paid for 2,000 years ago. And so when we draw near... When we draw near, like think of the priests in the Old Testament when they went into the, into the temple to perform the sacrifice. Uh, how much washing and preparation and cleaning of themselves and, and all of these rituals that they had to go to so they could just go in and just grab, put in new bread and take the old bread out or relight the fire or do whatever they had to do in there. But we as worshipers, what makes us worship? That we are not... what what. Um, what sets us free to worship God? What sets us free to worship God is that there's no more conscience of sin. Praise the Lord. It's that simple. When I understand that it, what, what Paul said, what David said in the book of Psalms, he said, blessed is the man whose sins have not been imputed to him. Blessed. We are a blessed people. We are blessed because today in my conscience does not reside all, all of not only my sins, but the sins of the world. Sins of all of Adam, so all, all the sins of all my 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 uh, ancestors are not in my conscience, and that sets us free to worship God. Because there's no way that we can worship God when we're worried about our sin, when we're trying to fix it, when we're trying to manipulate, when we're trying to like, okay, I didn't do that right, or I didn't do this right, or I'm I'm failing in this way, or I got to do better in this way. I think sometimes we approach God, or people approach God, and they say, well, I. I'm going to have a good conscience if I get all of these things lined up and then I'm, okay, at least I'm trying. You know, that, that's one thing that sometimes we say, well, at least I'm working on it, you know. That's what counts. I'm working on it. But that doesn't count. It, it, it's not enough. It is not enough if I'm trying to, either it's all God having taken care of the sin issue or it is not enough. And that's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. We are cleansed. I love that because when I come to church, when we come to a meeting like this, when we get together in homes like we, we're going to be doing in January, we talked about that last night when, we, get, when we, we were at Tony's house yesterday. It's so great that we're not living in the conscience of sins. It's just awesome. And number two, I'm not living in the conscience of other people's sins. Maybe I know something about somebody else. I don't know. When you're in a church, especially in a small church, that's why some people don't like to go to small churches because they just don't want everybody to know their, their stuff, you know? That's why we always want to be careful to um, remember to apply the blood in other people's lives, too. And that we apply the blood not only in our life, but in somebody else's life. And that's what causes worship. When we get together here, there's a free spirit of worship because I'm not living in all of my, all of my, um, all of my defects and all of my, 
all of my trespasses because I'm cleansed. Amen? Just think about it. That's the first thing I want to say today is that we are cleansed. That the sin question has been, t- has been paid for and the conscience will only accept one thing and that is death and blood. That's the only thing that your conscience, your human conscience will accept. It will not accept doing good. It will not accept trying harder. It will not accept uh, anything else. It, it won't accept overcompensation, giving in an area when I'm, when I'm failing in another area. It doesn't accept that the conscience is built. It is in John chapter 1, verse 8. It's the light. There's something there that's telling us that, that there's the righteousness of God. And once we see the blood, the conscience says we're good. That's the way the conscience is built. If it sees the blood of Christ, if it see, and, and you know, this is, this is, this, if I could belabor the point for a minute, uh, Bruchko, I believe it was Bruchko, great missionary to the uh, Central America. Uh, he, in South America, he, um, he observed, um, and also it's written in this book called Eternity in Their Hearts by Richardson, that there was a tribe. <coughs> that there was a secluded tribe that missionaries had gone into and they had discovered that they, that they had this very strange ritual that what they would do is that they would have, at certain times of the year, certain seasons of the year, they would sacrifice an animal, put it up in the elevated place and allow the blood to drip down. And then each person in the tribe would walk underneath that, that slain animal and let the blood drip on their head and then they would move forward. And that was their, that was their uh, that was their tradition of cleansing. There is something about, you don't have to tell a man, but a man knows this, that the blood needs to be shed, that blood had to be shed, and blood was shed, and not just the blood of bulls and goats, not just the blood of something else, but it was the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and that was enough, that was enough. And so this is what troubled Israel, because Israel and all of Jerusalem was on a system that was not enough, and it was not enough to sacrifice every year. And the more, that, the more that people try in their life to satisfy a, um, a bad conscience or, or a sick conscience, the more we try to satisfy that with something else other than the blood of Jesus Christ, guess what happens? The, 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 the conscience screams louder. The, the conscience continues to cry out that something is not right. The second thing is, what is worship? I know this just sounds very basic. I know what worship is, but it's really important that we just continually re... re re-examine our definitions of words because the devil's continually trying to redefine words in our in our ever-changing progressive culture worship when i think of worship i don't know does a picture come to your mind um i like graphics i enjoy graphics but you know when you think of worship i think of a dark misty um blue big large chapel and there's you just see hands going up and there's somebody up in the front leading worship and it's just this amazing i like i mean i love singing worship that's the first impression that maybe would come to our minds, but worship is something different. I think praise and worship are different. And I've said this before, but praise is the acknowledgement and the gratitude for what God has done. That's what praise is. Praise God for all of his works. That's what, what, that's what, as David got older, notice his Psalms, as he gets older, he talks more and more about praise. You know, I think in old age, older age, I don't think that, what is old, by the way, anyway, God God is eternal, so we must be kids, you know, until we're like 100 years old, we're still kids. But praise is like, when we look back at our life, like Jeff was saying, look back in the last few weeks or last few years, and we say, and this is what I do with my wife sometimes. I, talk, I say, honey, has God good to us? I just do, maybe sometimes when times are tough, sometimes when things are like, we are experiencing limitations, 
Or sometimes things don't pan out the way you want them to go, and you just say, hey, let's talk about the goodness of God right now. Just like praise the Lord for what he has done. But what's the highest form of praise? What's the highest form of praise? We just ask you that question. What's the highest form of praise? What is it? Studying his word. Yeah, studying the word. But like, what is the highest form? If, if praise is worshiping God for the things that he has completed, what's the highest form of praise? It's worship, yeah. But like, I was talking about praise here for a minute. I, for, yeah, well, that's worship. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. But praise is like gratitude for the cross, for what was done. What's the highest praise? Okay. Sean gets an A for the class today. <laughs> no, praise is like when I just, the highest form of praise is when I'm, when I'm just focusing on something that's finished, and that's the finished work of Christ. If I understand the finished work of Christ, that means that today my needs are finished. They're completed, okay? I need gas in my car, okay? I can praise the Lord because that, there's a completed work there. It's not something, you know, needs don't just show up in our life and say, okay, wait a minute. I think God missed something there. No, there is already an answer. And so we praise God for a completed work, that the work that is done. And then number two, worship. Worship is different from praise because worship is the acknowledgement and gratitude for who God is. The personhood of God, right? Worship is for who, it's when we are, it's when we are worshiping the personhood and the persona of who God is. And who is God? He has been incarnated in the form, in the form of a, of a man, Jesus Christ. When we look at God in the flesh, we see a baby Jesus, vulnerable. That's just one of the most amazing scenes in my. I, I just we said it last week. Every major religion in the world has a has a logo that's a very powerful, meaningful logo. The logo for Christianity during Christmas is a newborn baby in a dirty dirty manger where pigs and horses eat out of. Wow, that's not a powerful looking picture, but that is what is so powerful. Worship is just acknowledging and gratitude for who God is regardless of what God does or does not do. It's like, okay, God, if you do this, great. If you don't do this, great. I mean, I would like you to do this, but if you don't do this, this is what Job, this is what Job, Job was in Job 1, verse 20 through 22, Job was just like, he was saying, God, I'm just worshiping you for who you are. My life is a disaster right now. I don't even understand what's going on. And it's so interesting that God never tells Job, even at the end of the story. Oh, by the way, Job, you were the center, you were the center piece in a ma- major spiritual chess game of spiritual warfare. And you were the main piece that everybody was after. But he, God never says that to Job. It's just all about Job getting to know who God is. And so... Job is like, whatever happens, I came into this world with nothing. I'm going to leave this world with nothing. I'm going to worship you. Isn't that great? Like worshiping God for who he is. And that's why we need to live uh, in a continual renewal of our mind that, of, of who God is. Eugene Peterson said this, and he just recently went home to be with the Lord. He wrote the Message Bible, but he also had just some very interesting, he had, some, had written some really interesting books. But I like this quote that he said. He said, worship is a strategy, and just listen to this. Worship is a strategy by which we interp- uh, interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and what is happening in our world to attend to the personhood of God. We don't, if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we have no chance of attending to him and hearing from him. That's why life happens, so that we would be interrupted with our preoccupation with ourselves 
and get occupied with the personhood who is in, who is in our midst, who is present with us. Isn't that amazing? That's worship. And that's the strategy that God has in our life. And so I think very simply, when, if we were to ask this question, what is worship? What we've been taught over the years is just worship. The highest form of worship or worship is um, concentration of our attention. What am I focusing on? That's what I'm worshiping. Am I, if I'm focusing on the personhood and the nature and the wonder of who Jesus Christ is, that is worship. And that leads to a, 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 a form or a, um, a type of awe. So anything that steals, and I was just meditating on this this week, anything that steals or tries to steal our attention from the personhood of Jesus Christ, anything, it could be something very good. Remember, any doctrine or anything that we are in, in ministry or in study or whatever we're approaching in our, in our Christian life, never remove the personhood of Christ from it. Because when we do, what happens is we have a cold, I mean, what we're, we may be doing something really incredible, but if Christ is not in it, then what will happen is, is that it's just, it is just dead. It's like a dead work. It's not, it, and that's when I, stud, when I study theology, and I don't know everything. I don't, know, I'm, I don't think I'm going to know everything even in eternity. I'm going to be in a continual state of learning. So, so let's, let's just, let's just uh, you know, I know that we are continually in a conversation about things. But let's always say, you know something? Hey, maybe we don't. Maybe we see through glass darkly right now. But let's make Christ the issue. And let's not make, you know, like, okay, the trash wasn't taken out in the church the issue. You know, let's not make that the issue or, or what somebody's wearing or whatever it could be. There's a lot of things the devil's like, wants to, hey, the devil wants to take, wants to, his, uh, you know, let me just say this. The Ephesian church was an amazing church with incredible teaching. But what was their problem? They got occupied with something else other than Jesus Christ. They got occupied with what they believed in. And so Jesus was no longer in the center. He was, but their eyes were off onto something else. And what did they lose? They lost their first love. What was their first love? Not that they were loving God, but that God first, what? Loved them. Let's remember that. Sometimes we hear messages like, well, you, gotta, you can't, I, I felt I, like a lot. I lost my first love. Well, that could happen 3,000 times a day. Just look at the first love, which is Jesus Christ so enamored and, and with us because of, of his love for us. And so worship is anything that steals our focus from Jesus Christ or the personhood of God really is going to be an idol. That's just what idol worship is. Idol worship is when, when I'm living, I, and guess what? In the Christianese or the churchianity that we live in, our idols could be, could be very good. They could be like very noble, very wonderful, like, okay, my family or my or I got to pay my bills as a good Christian, or I got to do this, or good do, do do that. I got to have a good reputation. That can all turn into idols. And guess what happens? God God will fight that because He does not want idol worship in our life. Because when we live in an when we're living, when we're living in idol worship, guess what happens? A person could become an idol. Uh, a situation could be a, a life status could be an idol. But whenever we get focused on an idol, guess what can guess what happens? We are being robbed by the communion that is just milliseconds available to us and uh, leaves us so empty and wanting more. Idols, idols are not just dead things. They are, they are energized by a system, a satanic system, that, that when they just sit there, they, you think, okay, well, it just sits there and it's, 
you know, I go there when I want it, and then when I don't need it anymore, I leave, and, and, and it's, we're all good. But no, the idol does not leave. Satan is not, uh, Satan is not content on that kind of relationship. He, when somebody gets, for example, gambling or whatever, any addiction you can think of, the, 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 the spirit behind all of that is that um, what happens, you know, you hear people say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's never true. Because what happens in Vegas actually goes, stays in your soul and comes home with you. Mm-hmm. And that, there's that pain and there's that regret. And like, they, why was I so stupid to lose all that money? But you know something? Idols are, gonna, are very demanding. And they're going to demand more. And they're going to demand more of your time, more of your time, more of your energy, more of this, more of that. Until the point, unless one of two things happens. Either I say voluntarily no to that and I'm looking to Christ, and I'm going to be enamored, and I'm going to be living in communion with Jesus Christ in the manger and just be filled with awe and wonder and reverence, or plan B happens. And that is the next thing I want to talk about. <coughs> it's plan B, and it's number three. There are two things that, that seem to be always present in any act of worship in the Bible. And I was thinking about this. Every act of worship in the Bible, there is always at least two things that were present. Number one, suffering. Suffering. And when we talk about suffering, we're talking about pain. We're talking about inner discomfort. We're talking about um, sadness. We're talking about um, disconnection. We're just talking about a lot of things that go on in people's soul. And suffering is something that seems to always be present in the time of worship. And there's something about suffering that enables us to realize when I suffer, whether it might be a physical situation or I'm in need or, or um, I'm being plagued in a relationship or just something is, is really troubling me, maybe on a physical level, suffering is something when that God allows it, when God allows it, when God allows something, uh, we can't look at it from this perspective. Okay, God is, God is evil and he's allowing this thing to happen to me. But when suffering happens, what it's doing is it's telling us this one great truth that we are so in need of God and 100% dependent in our need of God that we are so dependent on God. And when we, when we enter into a circumstance where we are uncomfortable or something doesn't seem to be right, just remember this, that, that this is reminding us that we are in so much need from God, that we are so... I think Marcia said this to me, to me the other day. She came to church and she was just saying, like, I just needed to be here. You know, it's just great when we look at fellowship as need. You know, like, I need this. This is my, this is my great need in my life. I need this. I need this fellowship. I need this interaction. Um, this is a really beautiful thing that um, suffering, you know, when, when someone suffers... And when someone is experiencing brokenness in their life, God is really attracted to that. It sounds weird, but when God sees human brokenness, he's, he, he, he has the same compassion that Jesus had. When, our, when we are suffering, when we see need, or when there's something that's not complete in our life, or we're looking at something and we say, okay, that's not right, I'm suffering in this circumstance. When we turn to God, there's that brokenness, there's that sense of need, that awareness of like, okay, God, I am needy. There's something in the compassion of God that just motivates God. God just does not stand by and say, hey, you know what? Your suffering doesn't mean anything to me. You're in that situation because of your own poor decisions or, or whatever. God is, God is moved with compassion on our circumstances. He is, com- 
He is moved with compassion on people's uh, suffering. And somebody asked this question to um, a preacher one time. What do I need? What do I need to experience God? What do I need to experience God? I want to experience God more. And you know what the answer was? You just need need. I just love that. You just need need. If you have need, you're going to experience God in your life. I don't know if you have needs today. Uh, I don't know if what they are, what, how they are internally or externally. If we have need, that's our greatest asset. Need, I don't mean in a need of, in the sense of something that is, that is out of God's control. I mean, if there is a need in our life and we are broken, then there is a nearness to God. There's a nearness of God to that. And God is attracted to that. And God, is, God wants to minister. The second word that is always present in worship is just solitude. Just solitude, quietness. Um, how many times has God taken you and I out of situations and put us into a place of solitude? Because <laughs> he wants to be alone with us. And he wants us to discover the amazing nature of who he is. That's, that's part of worship. Suffering and solitude. Job became, a, a Job became an incredibly deep worshiper, not because suffering made him... Uh, it, what happened was that Job began to understand the nature and the personhood of God. Secondly, solitude. Job was in a place, and we look at Jesus Christ, we look at Joseph and Mary and Jesus in this, in this barn or in this wherever they were. Um, their solitude... The solitude that they were in, God was just coming home and he was speaking to them in a very deep way. Solitude. Just getting alone with God. One of the biggest, somebody asked me recently, what's the, what's the biggest thing that you, what's the biggest hindrance that you face uh, as a church in, in America? And I said, people's schedules. <laughs> just people's schedules. We're just so busy, you know, doing all this stuff. And sometimes God like has to either break our legs or I don't want to, I'm just being in, just giving an illustration here, not literally. God has to do something in our life. Um, Marcus and I were chatting a little bit and, you know, I remember for six months I couldn't get out of my bed because I was, God just wanted to be late, to lay in that bed with my back issue and just to look at him. And I was like, okay, God, I'm not being fruitful. I can't, I can't do ministry. I can't, I can't be where I need to be. I can't work, all this stuff. And God's like, you're exactly where I need you to be. I want to talk to you. And guess what happens? That was one of the most amazing times of just study and interaction and communion with God. And then after my first trip to Houston, and we were thinking on the flying home, that was a September in 2015, flying back, we were thinking, okay, I think we're going to move to Houston. And we were thinking about it. Two days later, I had this major bike accident where I shattered like my uh, collarbone into like four different pieces and there's a plate there with eight big screws and it was just a mess. And I just remember not being able to do anything for weeks and weeks and weeks, but just sit at my desk and read my Bible and just and study and just hear from God. And it was also one of the most amazingly rich times. Solitude always accompanies worship and worship always accompanies a solitude, a quietness. And I think that that's something, if we have to get up early in the morning like, I love David's, per- he pursued God because there was something in David that loved God, and that was the Holy Spirit. And when we begin to pursue God, solitude. I want to wrap it up with this. Um, let's guard our wonder. I was thinking about that this morning as I was coming here. Guard your wonder. Remember when Jesus said, 
except you be like a little child, you will not enter into the kingdom. And I know I'm not quoting that verse specifically correct, but the point was is that to enter into the kingdom, there needed to be a childlike worship. There needed to be like childlike faith. What is it about a child? Well, we, we went over to Tony's last night, and Tony, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you have not been to Tony's house, you don't know Tony. <laughs> you know, because, um, you know, we went there, and it was like walking into this winter wonderland. It was lights everywhere, and it was like all of these, you know, um, amazing, you know, it was just amazing. We walked up there, and I put Caleb down at the beginning of the sidewalk, and all over his yard, there's like these lights and snow, you know, snowmen, and, you know. And I just, I, could, I looked at his face, and I was snapping pictures of him, because this kid was in a state of wonder. He had never seen this before. He was like, and you know, I don't know if, if you remember this, if you've had kids, you know, he would point, and he would do this backward, he'd like breathe in this, like, uh, like this sound, I can't even make it, but really loud, like he was just astounded, you know, he's amazed, you know, and I could tell, like, he's in this state of wonder, <coughs> I was feeding him breakfast the other morning and he was pointing at fans and he was like doing that. So everything for him is like the state of discovery and wonder. Let's guard that as adults that live in a very complicated, busy world that we could become so, you know, it's the greatest enemy of wonder, cynicism. Becoming cynical, like, oh, that's, that's not pure. That's just whatever. I know what that's all about. Been there, done that. I think that's just a bad... Let's not say that, been there, done that. There's, there's so much familiarity in there. That's just so much. We're limiting God when we say something like that. You know, I haven't been there, and I haven't done that, because maybe this is a, because his mercies are new every morning. The wonder of Christmas, just thinking about, you know, returning to that truth of the wonderfulness of God, that God would humble himself in such a way, in the form of a child, that he would, that he would allow himself to be a, a victim uh, of this world system, and that the humility of God was so incredible that it way it went way beyond anything that the devil could have ever imagined. The the incarnation of Jesus Christ was a total surprise to the devil. He didn't see it coming. I mean, he he had he had he read the Bible, he saw the prophecies and all that. But I truly don't believe that the devil understood how far God was willing to go. How far is God willing to go in your life? The devil has no idea. The devil's like, hey, you know what? They're going to do this, and that's going to be it. God's going to give them up. That's going to happen. Let's not lose the wonder of just the amazing grace of God. Let's not lose the wonder of Christmas. Because when we lose that wonder, then it affects our worship. When we lose that wonder, sometimes I think we need to get alone and get very quiet and just think about, okay, show me your wonder, God. Just show me your wonder. And and. And in circumstances that are uncomfortable, learn how to be in awe of God. And you can't fake that. And it can only happen when God is renewing our mind with new revelation and new insight on, on his humility and his, uh, his obedience to the cross. I mean, what motivated Christ? What motivated God to send his son? I, I mean, I have a son. I look at what God did with his son. I'm like, <laughs> okay. As so far beyond me, I could never do that. You know, I could never give my son to somebody else or these young kids that are just kind of floating around. You know, they, what's going on? And you know, he's going to be born in a manger. Like, could I do that? No, I could not. But God did that. Why? What motivated him? Because he loved us, yeah. and that's the great story of Christmas—the love of God—and that causes us to wonder 
that causes us to be in a state of amazement and that causes us to be in a place of worship because we look at Christ and we are amazed. So, you know, we're like a week and a half. How far away away from Christmas? A couple of weeks? Nine days. I knew Eduardo would know. Nine, how many hours, Eduardo? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, we are, we're getting near to Christmas. And, like, you know, let's not get overwhelmed with the familiarity of all the stuff. Let's just every morning, like, with our families sit down and just talk about the wonder. When you're in the car and you've got nothing to talk about, or when you're sitting down, just say, hey, you know what? Have you been amazed lately by the grace of God in our life? Let's just be amazed in a state of amazement. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God.